my eyes to the hills. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. God, I want to begin just by expressing my sincere thanks to you for this church. Lord, even what a blessing it is to worship every Sunday with this body of believers who have meant so much to me. I thank you for bringing me and my family here that we could enjoy one another and be built up in so many different ways by the the blessing of the peer. Lord, I thank you for each soul. And it's on behalf of these souls that I pray now, God, that you would make your word come alive. Lord, you're aware of our past, our present, our future. Lord, you know what we have yet to face. And I pray that as we face it, that this word would be, have such a, a strengthening power in their life that they would be able to stand fast amidst overwhelming fears. And I pray that that would simply be the result of this message, that it would be clear, your word would be clear, and that they would fully embrace its application, and that I would, obviously, as well, that we would be a faithful people full of faith versus a fearful people. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. You know, as I was praying... um, and I've, I've shared it with a few times with some of the people, uh, I think at Community Group I shared it most recently. But one of the things I'm most ashamed of in my life is fear. In fact, there's been kind of a growing awareness of, of actually how, uh, how fearful I am as a person. I don't, for whatever reason, I haven't recognized so many of my tendencies as fear. But as an example, I'll find myself many times, you know, multiple times even in a month, Lying awake at night, I'll hear something outside and my mind will wonder, you know, what sort of psychopath might be trying to get into my home. And uh, I never had that fear growing up, you know, because dad was always there. I figured <laughs> there's a threat of it. Um, but I have those fears. I have other fears as well. I fear... What people might think of me, I fear making mistakes, I fear you know, humiliating myself. I don't like to go to cities because I fear trying to find a traffic or a, a parking spot. Um, many different fears. What do you fear? What do you, each of you, I mean, think, think about yourself as an individual. What, is it, what are some of the things that you find yourself fearful of? I know some of you can't identify with my fears, but some of you can. We all fear something. It could be people's opinions, failures, disease, death. And I, think, I, I recognize we're constantly tempted by fear, and that can be good things. There's good things that we should be afraid of, but there's also things maybe we shouldn't be afraid of, irrational fears. And like I mentioned, recently I've become more aware of how fearful I am as a person. How much fear actually dictates so many of my decisions. Or at least would if I would constantly yield to it. I think one of the most decisive factors in most of our decision makings, especially as Americans, is fear. Just think about the reasons for why you don't do things. Why you don't talk to strangers. Why you don't go to new places. Why you don't share your faith, even with family members. Why you don't take risks. I think we're afraid of looking foolish. 
We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of loss. I mean, some things we've tried and it's been the, the result was so unpleasant that we never want to put ourselves in that position again. And so fearing the result prevents us from actually taking that risk again. You know, I was recently reading, I don't know if I'd shared it with, with this church or not, I can't remember, but I was recently about a, a Navy SEAL, and in his training, they had been, they'd been going through that rigorous training for a number of weeks already. They'd had experienced a lot of dropout. But he was, he was sharing about this experience they had right before one of the hardest weeks. They knew it was this really hard week that was going to come up. And they're all standing on the shore of San Clemente. The sun's going down. He said it was one of the most beautiful scenes um, that I'd ever experienced. It was calm. There was a small breeze blowing in the wind. And then he said, one by one, people just started dropping out. He said they lost more people that day at that moment than they had lost really the whole of their you know, months of training. And as he thought about it, the conclusion he came to, he says, I think it was just fear. As they heard of their trainers, the things that was going to be coming upon them in, these, in an upcoming week, they started thinking about how unpleasant it would be and they would maybe not make it through. And what was really striking about that is, is the reality of that. How often it's simply fear, not the actual real experience that, keep, that, that causes us to falter. I mean, how often when we're in the midst of something, even if it's difficult, there's just a propensity to stick with it. But it's in the anticipation of what might happen that we actually find ourselves dropping out. I think this is a common experience for us. And my hope in this text is that it will serve as powerful ammunition against the fears that confront you on a day-to-day basis. For the purpose that when you have a decision to make, the decisive factor in your decisions will not be fear, but it will be faith. That's my hope. That's how I've been praying for you this day, is that this text would have such a, a, an impact upon your life that when you have decisions that you have to make, fear would not be the thing that motivates you or is the decisive element, but rather confidence in God's power in your life and His care for you. And realistically, the sermon, is, it's not going to wipe away your fear. That's not going to happen. You're going to live with fear the rest of your life. We all will. And it, it, we could be afraid of something that we're not going to be afraid of maybe five years down the road. But five years down the road, you may have ten other fears that are far more overwhelming than what you're experiencing now. Fear is, just get used to it. Fear is just going to be a part of your life. Fear doesn't go away. What we need to do, though, is we need to learn how to fight it. How do we deal with those fearful thoughts? And I hope that this text will help give you ammunition in that fight. You will still have to fight, but I think it's a great weapon. And it has been in my life, this psalm. That's why I chose to, to preach on this psalm in particular, is because it's such a comfort to me. And God knew the Israelites were going to have to battle with fear. It's interesting, as you read through the Old Testament, time and time again, God reminds them of what he has already done for them. There's constant reminders. You you begin, uh, I think, of the book of Deuteronomy, right? Israel had already experienced so much of God's grace, getting freed from Egypt, crossing through the Red Sea, constantly being provided for in the wilderness. And at the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses spends, I think it's like five chapters expressing the history of how he's preserved them. Before he gets into the new law or the restating of the law, that's what Deuteronomy means, he begins by saying, let me remind you of what God has already done. And if you read the Psalms, a, a constant theme again and again and again is, remember Israel, what God has already done for you. Constant reminders of his goodness and his faithfulness. And I think it's the same reason that we, our favorite hymns, our favorite hymns that we tend to cling to in difficult times or that we love singing and reciting are, have words, here I raise my Ebenezer, thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will lead me safely home by God's good grace. Or, 
through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. But grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Why do we love those words? Because they're a reminder to us that we, we, they have substance to them. I mean, Christianity, it's not, it's not just this pie in the sky. Let's just, this whimsical hope that I, I, I hope things get better. It's some, uh, something abstract that we cling to. It's not. There's substance behind each of the promises that we have in Scripture. And when we're reminded of those things, it strengthens us. If God helped Israel through the Red Sea, can he not help me right now in this illness that I'm facing? And he can that's the point. And God knows it. And he knows our tendency to fear. So he reminds us. We fight fear through the truth of God's word. We fight fear with reminders of his faithfulness. And I think that's how the word works, right? A promise. There's truth. God says, I am this way. And we're reminded of, yes, okay, he is. So we have that truth. But he also accompanies it with reminders, physical reminders of how he's been faithful in the past. And in many biographies and faithful Christians, both in the Bible and and outside the Bible, you have uh, you see God's faithfulness and we read of that faithfulness. It strengthens us. That's why we like to talk to one another and we're strengthened by one another. Right now I'm reading a book, two, two biographies. I don't do that often, but I'm reading them for two different reasons. I'm reading. Uh, a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a, and a book about David Brainerd. Um, and part of that is to help strengthen me in the fears that I face currently. But I'm so encouraged as I read about how God was faithful to these men and their example. And so it's following that line of thinking <clears throat> that not only are we going to look at the Word of God today and see the truths of God's faithfulness and His preservation of us, but but... Secondly, I want to include a number of different accounts from various Christians that I hope will illustrate just the truths that God is talking about here. So I'm going to use a lot of illustrations and stories with the hope that your faith will be strengthened by it too. That you'll see the truth in the Word of God, but then you'll have some physical reminder to encourage you as you also, another Christian trying to engage in the fears of life, that you'll have some physical reminder to hold to as well that will give flesh to that promise. And I'm guessing probably many of you are not really tempted to fear right now at this this moment. I hope not. But you will. And it could be just minutes from now. It could be hours or days from now. And I want you to be able to fight with God's Word And these reminders, the fear that you are facing. So let's look again at Psalm 121. It says at the very beginning, in most translations, it says it's a song of ascents. And the ascents, the song of ascents is really helpful. And I think it's going to give clarity to what's going on in the psalm. Because they were psalms, psalms, songs, that were sung as pilgrims would venture to Jerusalem. There were a number of different pilgrimage feasts that Israel was called to enjoy throughout the year, three in particular. And as they were called to go to these feasts, many of them would ascend up the hills to Jerusalem. And they would sing these songs, reminding them of the truths. And the first lines in this psalm reflect their experience. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this brings us to the first point. God is the source of help. God is the source of help. See, as this pilgrim looks up at the landscape that's before him, there's some encouragement, but it's, all, there's, it's a little bit daunting. He desires protection, guidance, and blessing. And he he wonders to himself, where will my help come from? He looks at the mountains. And he sees both positive and negative things. Positively, his mind is drawn to the, the, the reminder that as he ascends to this mountain, he's going to be going into the presence of God. That's why he's going to Jerusalem, is to worship. 
And mountains in Scripture are often a place of provision and protection. Sometimes they're illustrative of uh, places of renewal and of hope. But they were also viewed as places of loneliness and abandonment as well. The haunts of wild and dangerous beasts, the abode of false gods, often enemies lurked in the mountains. A mountain is a place where a person who was ascending it could slip and fall to their doom. You guys might remember in the story of the Good Samaritan, it was along a mountain path that the man was attacked by these robbers. This was a frequent occurrence in the mountains. And so I think the psalmist is actually being both literal and metaphorical in this use of where does my help come from as he looks to the hills. And I think in both literal and a, and a metaphorical sense, you have both an immediate truth that's apparent and a timeless truth. See, as he's ascending up this mountain, immediately he's reminded <clears throat> of the, the hope in the midst of his fear. He had this hope of reaching his destination, but he also had to battle this fear of being attacked or of slipping. So there was an immediate truth that his mind was, was drawn to. Where's my help come from? My help comes from the Lord in a very physical, real way. But he's also being metaphorical, and I think that's why in this psalm they would sing it again and again as a reminder that no matter what hill a person's venturing toward, they could be reminded of the truth that God will protect them. His experience reflects the uncertainty of life with both its hopes and fears. The same uncertainties we face when we're in a new situation or we're about to begin a journey. In fact, this psalm is often quoted as the traveler's psalm. Uh, David Livingstone, the great missionary to Africa, he, he read this psalm to his family members right before he left England to go become uh, a uh, missionary in Africa. To remind them, God's going to take care of me as I go. I think it's helpful to consider this psalm again whenever we are faced with new situations and there's uncertainty in our life. Consider these situations you might have faced when you've moved. You might ask, your, uh, ask yourself the question, what, what happens if I don't get along with my new neighbors? What if I don't like my roommate? What if I have a hard time finding my way around and I get lost in a, in a dangerous part of town? Will I be able to find a good church? Will there be any friends there? Or when you have a new job, you might wonder, can I keep this job? What if I don't get along with my boss or the other employees? When you first got married, maybe you wondered, what are we going to fight about? Is, that, is, it, is one of these fights going to be crushing? Will it last? Are there any unknowns about my spouse? Is there some secret? Maybe they just haven't told me yet. I'm just going to get a bomb dropped upon me. Will she or he meet my expectations? Or when you have children, maybe you think as you hold your infant in your arms, what if they get sick? I know for dads often it's, what if I drop it? <laughs> right. Um, or even as you consider as they grow older, what if they embrace the world and they turn away from Christ? There's many new turns that cause us fear, but also trials. You lose your job and you don't know when are you going to get a new one. See, it's easy for us to look back and say, oh, wow, it's cool how God provided for such and such. But when you're in the midst of a job loss, it can be one of the most frightening things in the world. Or when you lose a loved one and you ask yourself, how, how long will the emptiness last? That gut empty feeling. Because there's, there's no telling. And you might say, okay, I know. Grief lasts for a long time, but you don't know how long. Why can't I move past the grief? Why didn't I do enough while they were alive? 
Or maybe when you're struck with chronic illness, you wonder, how can I endure? And will I have what it takes to not give up? We face many new turns and many trials in our life. And I think this psalm is such an encouragement because as the psalmist says, he asks, where does my help come from? In the midst of that situation, he asks himself, where does my help come from? But you'll notice he's not being, he's not really asking a question for his own sake. It's a rhetorical question. It's not provoked from a lack of faith. See, the asking the question actually proves the anticipation that he has. Despite the feelings of fear and hope, in asking that question, what he's saying is, my help comes from the Lord. I know where my help comes from. So no matter what befalls me, my help is Yahweh, the Lord. And you see, the psalmist's trust is remarkable, especially when you consider all the places People are tempted to look for help and security. We're tempted to look to other people for help. Maybe it's money. It could be uh, the, the police force or the military power. Or it could just be simply more information. Right? I can trust in this instance, God, if you just give me more information. But none of those things is what the psalmist looks to as his help. And really... After this question that he answers, the whole rest of the psalm is just reasons that he gives for why he has confidence that God will help him. And this is what he says. He knows that God is the creator of the universe and therefore can help him. He knows that God will care for him with unfailing watchfulness. That he will protect him at all times and that he will protect him in every event. And so his understanding of who God is and God's care for him gives him absolute confidence that nothing will befall him that is not purposed for good. The first thing he tells us about his help, Yahweh, is that he is the creator of the universe. In verse 2, he made heaven and earth. So just think again of the significance of that. Simple statement that we know, that we repeat often. The very one who simply spoke. How easy it is to speak. I mean, kids speak. He simply spoke. And in an instant, all of the galaxies in the world were thrust into their positions. And all, all time, matter, was really suspended with them. He spoke. The very one who directs the chaotic movement of quantum particles in the minutia that we can't even see, even with powerful telescopes, the one who directs every single one of them is also the one who orders precise movements of those cosmic bodies, the stars and the suns. The very one who guides the power of hurricanes And yet he oversees the development of tiny babies in the womb. All matter, all movement, all time is absolutely in his hands. See, nothing moves without God directing it. The source of all the power in the universe is the source of the psalmist's help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's my help. That's my help. And so he goes on to explain that help, that person will care for you with unfailing watchfulness as a shepherd. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. See, it depicts God as both a sleepless shepherd and a valiant defender. God, the maker of heaven and earth, is viewed in the intimate and pastoral imagery of a shepherd who leads his sheep along dangerous paths of a mountain without allowing them to slip at even 
the smallest step. And he's the shepherd who never sleeps. Now, to really strengthen, I think, what this, the, the emphasis of this text, I want to point out some of the interesting grammar that's used. See, the poet uses a, a step-like parallelism that actually increases in, in intensity over these next few verses by the use of a, a few rhetorical advices, so I'll point them out. First, notice his use of intensifying negatives. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So you have negative, negative, negative emphasis. Second, notice the repetition of the word slumber. He will not slumber. He will neither slumber and again nor sleep. Third, look at the different way he describes God. In verse 3, he's described as simply the watcher. But then in verse 4, he's described as the watcher of Israel. And then finally, another emphasis that's used here is the interjection, behold, or indeed, at the beginning of verse 4. So this is, he's trying to grab our attention with these words and with these rhetorical advices. A literal translation would be, he will not allow your foot to slip. Your keeper will not slumber. Indeed, he will never slumber. He will never sleep. The keeper of Israel. See, the, the point that the psalmist is going out of his way to make is God, the creator of the universe, will never, 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 never forget you. Never. Never. Because he is the shepherd of Israel. And therefore, he is your shepherd. So what he's trying to say in the, in the grammar there that I'm trying to draw out is just simply that. He will never, 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 never forsake you. Never. And he wants us to see that. What a comfort too when we consider he will neither slumber nor sleep. This is really significant, especially in that day and age. I mean, it's hard for us to have the comfort of it, I think, that it evokes because we live in the day of 911 and police force that aren't corrupt. But in, at nighttime, the ancient peoples would entrust their lives to guards or sentries who would either watch at the gate or if they're in a camp, they would keep watch. And especially in the, in the Roman army, this is what they would do. If a, if, a, if a Roman sentry fell asleep on duty, the punishment was one of the most severe you could imagine. And it was this. They would put him in the middle of his regiment, and his fellow soldiers would club him to death. So he'd be killed by his own soldiers. And you ask, well, that's kind of gruesome. Why? It's because when he fell asleep... He took every single person's life into his hands. And if he fell asleep, they could have all died. And so it was their way of showing the person who's on duty can never sleep. It was that risky. And it's hard for us to understand how risky it would be because we don't need that comfort anymore. But, uh, I mean, imagine if just, you know, the, the 911 operators just fell asleep. You know, across the nation. And we, we would never know if they could come to our aid. Likewise, you think of the, the shepherd imagery. Sheep entrusted their lives to their shepherd. If a shepherd fell asleep, wild animals might devour them or they might wander off and get lost and fall off a cliff. And so because God never sleeps, one can always count on his ever-present care. He's not sleeping. So when you wake up in fear in the middle of the night, you can sleep. Because God, the keeper of Israel, isn't asleep. He sees what's going on. And he'll keep you safe. You don't have to know what's out there because he does. And he cares for you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10:29. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. Even all the hairs on your head are numbered. So do not be afraid. You are more valuable than many sparrows. 
And this can be particularly reassuring in uncertain times. Just to know God knows the hairs of your head. And if he cares for sparrows, I mean, who cares for sparrows, really? He cares for sparrows. He provides them what they need. He's going to care for you. Thirdly, God will protect you at all times. See, not only will God care for you as a sleepless shepherd, but also an all-powerful protector. It says, the Lord is your keeper. He is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. See, the word keeper is actually the same one he used in previous verses, but his emphasis here is on how he keeps. It's clarified by what follows. He keeps as a shelter. He guards you as a shelter or protector. And then he goes on to say, he is the shade on your right hand. He's the pilgrim. He is the shade on the pilgrim's right hand. And the right, the right hand is significant because it's the place of one's champion. Uh, the, the place of one's savior. You might think of it, it's, it's your right hand man. We talk of our right hand man. This is God's way of saying, I am your right hand man. And the reason the shade is on the right hand is because the Savior, the champion, is standing right there. And so as the sun shines upon the person, they are standing in the shade of their protector. Right there. He's right there beside you. The point is he will never leave your side. He's like a faithful bodyguard. The mention of the sun and the moon is in keeping with the imagery of shade. And the point is, no matter it's whether it's the moon that's shining on you at the nighttime, or it's the sun that's striking you in the daytime, whether it's night or evening, God will right, be right there by your side. He will protect you from harm at all times. John Payton, a missionary from Scotland, took the gospel to cannibals who lived on a group of islands called the New Hebrides, uh, present-day Vanuatu in the South Pacific. And I love his story, and I uh, heartily encourage each of you guys to read it if you can, because I I, I know of no other man who has so many testimonies of God's protection and faithfulness. It was like every single day of his life, he was endangered while he was on uh, the New Hebrides Islands. So just to give you an explanation of what, his experience was like. He writes in just one of his daily journals. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket. And though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. And they did almost every day of his life. And just imagine that going to work and somebody's got a cocked gun pointed at you for four hours. And that was his daily life. And the guy wanted to kill him. I mean, it wasn't like, it, it, how do you explain why he didn't? Except for God. Another, another time, uh, one of his friends, a friendly chief, you could call it a friend, uh, was sick. And he was lying in his tent and he said, uh, call the missionary to come see me. And so he did. And we went and he bent over to him to find out if he was still alive. The, the chief drug a knife out, of the, out from underneath his pillow and stuck it right at his throat. And it just stood there quivering. And then after a few seconds, and Peyton says, I have no idea how long it was. <laughs> could have been seconds, could have been, felt like hours, right? He dropped the, the sword and he says, get out of here. What kept him? I mean, he, was, he was planning to kill him, but he didn't. And it was like that day after day. In another nighttime, again, we, God preserved him in the morning and also at night, he had been chased out of his home. And so he had to flee to another part of the island 
And he started, uh, he, he stayed with another missionary that was there. And this missionary had a house that was attached to a church. And the natives followed him to that house and they set fire to the church that was right next to it. And as, he, as Patton saw the, or Peyton, I don't know, whatever, however you pronounce his last name, as he saw the, the church go on fire, he said, I need to go out there and stop it because if it spreads, it will consume us as well. So he begged that his friend, the other missionary friend to let him outside of the house. And he did, and this is what he writes. He, the other missionary, did let me out. And he locked the door again quickly from the inside. And while his wife and he prayed and watched for me from within, I ran to the burning reed fence, cut it from top to bottom, tore it up and threw it back into the flames so the fire could not by it be carried to our dwelling house. I saw on the ground shadows as if something were falling around me and I started back. Seven or eight savages had surrounded me and raised their great clubs in the air. I heard a shout, kill him, kill him. One savage tried to seize hold of me, but leaping from his clutch, I said, dare to strike me and my Jehovah God will punish you. He protects us and will punish you for burning his church, for hatred to his worship and people and for all your bad conduct. We love you all and for doing good only you want to kill us. But our God is here now to protect us and will punish you. They yelled in rage and urged each other to strike the first blow. But the invisible one restrained them. I stood invulnerable beneath his invisible shield and succeeded in rolling back the tide of flame from our dwelling house. At this dread moment, readers may explain as they like, but which I trace directly to the interposition of God. A rushing and roaring sound came from the south, like the noise of a mighty engine or of a muttering thunder. Every head was instinctively turned in that direction, and they knew from previous hard experience that it was one of those awful tornadoes of wind and rain. Now Mark, the wind bore the flames away from our dwelling house, and had it come in the opposite direction, no power on earth could have saved us all from being consumed. It made the work of destroying the church only that, a, that of a few minutes. But it brought with it a heavy and murky cloud which poured out a terrific torrent of tropical rain. Now mark again, the flames of the burning church were thereby cut off from extending to and seizing upon the reeds and the bush. And besides, it had almost become impossible now to set fire to our dwelling house. So the house was preserved. The mighty roaring of the wind, the black cloud pouring down unceasing torrents, and the whole surroundings awed those savages into silence. Some began to withdraw from the scene. All lowered their weapons of war, and several, terror-struck, exclaimed, This is Jehovah's reign! Truly, their Jehovah God is fighting for them and helping them. Let us away! A panic seized upon them. They threw away their remaining torches, and in a few minutes they had all disappeared. And I was left alone, praising God for his marvelous works. Oh, taste and see that God is good. Blessed is he who trusts in him. And again, Patton's whole life is an account after account of such miraculous preservations. So encouraging. And it's so encouraging just to remember he was just a Christian just like you or I. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He was just a humble missionary from Scotland who went to a savage tribe to share the gospel with them. And it's what an encouragement that he wrote about his time. The psalmist continues by expressing how God will protect you in every event, beginning in verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The emphasis on these last two lines is that God will act watch over his pilgrim in all circumstances, both now and in the future. Coming in, that is, when you leave a situation and you enter into a new one, every event will be guarded by the Lord. So you go out of the house, when you go to work, you come back into the house. You're going out, you're coming in. It's, it's a phrase that just reflects no matter what you do. In every turn of life, God will be there and will protect you. But, although this is true, 
it does not mean you will not encountering suffering or even death. And in order to illustrate this point, I want to draw from an article that I read a few years ago, a few years ago by uh, missionary Steve Saint. In 1956, many of you might recall that five missionaries were speared by Alca Indians in Ecuador. And among them was Nate Saint. The movie Into the Spear is about Nate Saint's life and the lives of these missionaries. In 2002, his son, Steve Saint, wrote this concerning his father's death. I have concluded that my dad's death was not the result of random circumstances. I believe it was a carefully orchestrated plan. The jungle warriors who drove barbed spears through my dad's body were not the masterminds behind this plot. They were incapable of of even imagining the effect their dark act of hatred and the ensuing days of agonizing silence and wonder would have on the civilized world. After years of investigation and searching for details, I I have to conclude that God planned my father's violent death. I am convinced he orchestrated it to elicit a response that only such a shocking event, surrounded by mystery and uncertainty, could evoke almost 50 years later. And Steve Saint goes on to explain that he came to this conclusion because of the accounts that he had of those who killed his father. As many of you know, those missionaries' wives actually went back to that tribe and continued to share the gospel with them, and they were saved. And years later, Steve Saint, along with others, had a chance to interview their father's killers. In one conversation he had with a woman named Dewa, who was also one of the murderers, she described during their assault foreigners singing, like at a church, over the jungle canopy overlooking the beach they were killed at. And he wanted to confirm this account, and so he flew to Ecuador uh, when he was making a documentary that I think is often attached to that end of the Spear movie, the documentary there, as Steve Sate was working on. And he, when, he, when he arrived in Ecuador, he asked the three remaining warriors about their account of what happened. And he, this is what he writes. One by one, each of the three men told me that what they saw ha- appeared to be lights, in the same place where Dewa said she had saw the heavenly choir. They were further away, which might explain that what they saw was different. But all of them said they heard singing. Nevertheless, they were somewhat tentative in their description. The day after wrapping up the filmed interviews with the Wild Downey, that's the tribe, the Alka tribe, the film group and I were joined by two friends of ours, Kevin McAfee and Stephen Chapman. I was startled to hear music coming from the thatched long house immediately behind us. And then I realized it was Kevin just checking out the sound equipment that he had brought, bought. Suddenly, Kimo, that's one of the warriors, turned toward the music and listened intently. After a minute, he commented, Mananmi in Hadabopa, which means just like I heard it. And I didn't understand what he was referring to until I put together the obvious fact he was referring to the music and remembered that I had recently asked him about what had happened at Palm Beach. Kimo resumed his sign language conversation. Suddenly he turned toward the music once again and very specifically affirmed, I have heard that before, long ago. That is what I heard, just like that when your father died. The title of the soundtrack that he recognized as being what he heard after killing my dad and Jim and Pete and Roger and Ed was a piece written specifically for the documentary film that we were working on. As a father, I have agonized over what I have thought must have been going through my dad's mind as he lay dying out in the middle of nowhere, betrayed by the very people he and his friends had so carefully and methodically befriended. His failure would leave Marjorie, my sweet mom, a widow, He would never teach his two little boys to fly. His little girl would never sit on daddy's lap to hear another original bedtime story. He would never again fly sick Indians to the new hospital he and Roger had been working on so hard to complete. His passion for sharing the message that had set him free with people who had never heard was suddenly ended. 
I have imagined all these years that this must have been the pain of dad's last conscious minutes of life. But now I believe that I was wrong. If Dewa, Kimo, Yahweh, and Minkaye heard an angelic choir from the world beyond, I have no doubt that Jim, Ed, Pete, Roger, and Dad were made even more aware of their presence. They didn't die alone. I do believe now that God sent a reception committee to sing for them and to escort them into his presence. As I listened to music just written, which Kimo clearly asserted he had heard at Palm Beach, my heart swelled with a sense of well-being. God took what five men could not keep and exchanged it for something they cannot lose. It's our turn now to make the same deal and to give our lives away. And so just because God says that he will protect you does not mean that he won't allow you to be harmed. He will allow you to suffer if it is for his good, for your good and for his glory. And as Steve Saint recognized, his father Nate Saint and his four friends are a permanent testimony of this truth. They were not alone on that on that beach even when they were slain. And that's really the purpose of this psalm, is to to help us recognize how much God loves us. He will not forsake us. The purpose is to quench our fears by establishing a firm confidence that He cares for His people. See, when people are confident of God's love, they know that no matter what they fear, and no matter how that fear might be desperate and no matter how discouraging the situation they are they are in might be they know god will care for them and therefore they can face it with confidence so you recognize when a person is confident of their of god's love for them they don't need to watch their backs because god's watching their back and this frees them to love others it frees them to take risks It frees them to embrace what is uncomfortable. You know, 1 John 4.18, it says, Perfect love casts out fear. And when you know the perfect love of God, it frees you to love other people. I mean, imagine a person who who has a, a fear of bridges. If they knew that some child's life was in danger, they would cross that bridge if they needed to in order to save that child because of love love casts out fear and i think so as as i think about what god constantly is communicating to us and especially the story of the old testament that so much of our life is about fighting fear I mean, if you think about how the Israelites failed again and again and again it was because they were afraid they didn't have confidence that god would care for them And I think so much of what keeps us from advancing, both in our spiritual lives as well as taking risks for the growth of the Gospels, we're afraid of what might happen. But what do we have to fear if God is the shade on our right hand? I mean, really, what do we have to fear? And when we have that confidence, it just just gives you a sense of what might God use with that. I mean, I think Satan works, Satan crushes the church because he just instills fear into people's hearts. And so they're hesitant to advance or to minister. I want to close with this illustration. Um, this is a, this is a story uh, from, actually I got off a blog article of a couple of friends of Julie's and mine uh, who are missionaries in Mexico in fact, they're actually going to come to this church in a couple of weeks, and they're going to, Frank's actually going to preach to us and share about their ministry in Mexico. Um, Julie and I were actually intending to be missionaries alongside of them years ago before God took us in another direction. But in one of their updates, uh, this is what Frank's wife wrote about something that happened to them. She writes, Frank has a penchant for keeping life interesting around here. Last Sunday at one o'clock in the morning, as we were falling asleep, he heard a noise and poked his head out of the slider, which leads from our bedroom to our second story balcony. 
Next thing I knew, he was hurriedly donning the quickest piece of clothing he could find, my shorts. Oops. And then I heard him yell, I can run faster than you. At this point, my interest had me out of bed. And as I peered out the slider, I saw somebody crouching in the bed of my dad's pickup. Next thing I knew, Frank leaped off the balcony, jumped two meters to this very small piece of wall and rappelled down the exterior bars of the outside fence, chasing the thief. Dressing hurriedly, I went to check on the girls. I assumed he had been inside our fence and the truck was near the girls' bedrooms. All screens were intact. So next I went upstairs to check on my mom and dad, who were sleeping soundly. Ten minutes later, Frank had still not returned. So I called the police as images of knives and guns began to stir in my head. The police arrived in very quickly, AK-47s and all, asked a few questions, signaled to me that my dad's truck had been broken into, then were off in hot pursuit of the suspects. Okay, so... One in the morning, and they left me standing barefoot outside next to the crime scene. I bravely decided to go back inside for reinforcements. Back upstairs, I went to wake Dad up. Upon opening the truck, we observed papers and things everywhere where the thief had rifled through looking for valuables. Frank arrived home a few minutes later and told us how he'd seen two legs dangling out of Dad's pickup truck, sliding back window, how he chased the two suspects, and when they separated... He was able to catch up to the one who finally gave up, doubled over, gasping and broken, was how Frank described it. Frank then proceeded to remind him that this was Easter Sunday and that Christ had risen from the dead for him. He told him that this kind of life was a dead end and that if he kept this lifestyle, he would soon end up on the wrong end of a bullet. And then he prayed for the guy and walked back home. The police did grab him a few minutes later and took him down to the police station for the evening. Dad never did find anything missing from his truck. I was so thankful the Lord brought Frank back to me safe and sound. Frank's thoughts on the whole ordeal? I always wanted to do that. My husband, my hero, life really is plenty plenty interesting enough without all the extra entertainment, honey. And so if you're in Christ, the reason I share that, if you're in Christ, you can have full confidence in God's love, which frees you to do things like that. Chased after thieves so you can share the gospel with them. That they might be saved. So let Psalm 121 and these testimonies bring you confidence as you're confronted by fear. Let's pray. Strengthen our hearts, Father. That we might be dominated by love. That we wouldn't let all the silly childish fears that often direct our decisions to have any impact upon them. That we would instead be driven with confidence in your sovereign hand in our lives. So that even when we do face painful and gruesome trials, that we can face them with fear. Or with, sorry, with faithfulness. Fighting the fear, knowing that you care for us and you are a good shepherd. We thank you for choosing us to be your children, that we might have this confidence. We ask these things and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.